0: It's a pleasure to be with you all here again this morning, Um, and it is my pleasure to get to introduce our speaker one last time uh, for this weekend. Many of you were here yesterday and heard Jared Wilson speak at our fall conference on the Believer's Eternal Perspective, and I'm so encouraged to get to, to hear him one more time. Very good. For those of you who are not familiar with Jared, uh, he is an author of numerous books, um, three of which you actually could purchase out in the lobby. I think we have a few copies left, uh, but many of his books have been a great encouragement to me over the years as a pastor and as a believer, and so I I highly recommend his works. He's the author of many articles as well uh, that you can find in a a variety of publications. Uh, Jared has served as a pastor um, and is currently a, a teacher and professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. Um, he also is serving at his local church there, Liberty, as the director of the pastoral training center. Um, so he's doing a lot of work for the local church, and as anyone who heard him speak yesterday and who's, who, have read, who has read his books, you will know Jared is someone who loves Jesus, who is enthralled by the gospel, and is a great encouragement to us. Uh, Jared, I failed to mention this yesterday, anything personal, Jared is, has been married for 23 years to his wife, Becky. He was looking at me like I was going to say something suspicious. Um... But he's been married for twenty-three years. They have two daughters, Macy and Grace. Um, so again, it is a great pleasure to get to introduce him to you all today. And so, for one last time, please welcome Jared Wilson.
1: Good morning. My wife would want me to let you know it's four years, so it must be an old bio that you pulled there. But I want to make sure I get my math right. <laughs> Amen. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to the Book of Job. The book of Job, Job chapter 14. It's a great privilege to be with you. Uh, I've been grateful for your hospitality over the last couple of days, and I'm excited to enjoy the Word of God with you this morning as well. Job chapter 14. Victor Hugo, who of course is the author of such revered masterpieces as *Le Miserables and the Hunchback of Notre Dame, once said, tomorrow, if all literature was to be destroyed... And it was left to me to retain one work only, I should save Job. Rather interesting, isn't Isn't it? it? Anyone, I think, though, who has spent a considerable amount of time in the book of Job might see why. It is an epic masterpiece itself. One full of, of course, spirit-inspired poetry, poetry of unparalleled beauty theology of unrivaled depth, and pastoral counsel of uncommon grace. Job is simultaneously a poetic treatise, a poetic statement on the staggering sovereignty of God, and at the same time, an arm around someone who is suffering, hunched over in pain and grief. And Job is a man who has been struck as low as almost anyone could be struck, save Christ himself on the cross. And here, he's not as concerned, I think, um, that Victor Hugo would save him, perhaps, as that God would. So let's begin reading in Job chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Anyone born of woman is short of days and full of trouble. He blossoms like a flower, then withers. He flees like a shadow and does not last. Do you really take notice of one like this? Will you bring me into judgment against you? Who can produce something pure from what is impure? No one. Since a person's days are determined and the number of his months depends on you, and since you have set limits he cannot pass, look away from him and let him rest so that he can enjoy his day like a hired worker. There is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again, and its shoots will not die. If its roots grow old in the ground and its stump starts to die in the soil, the scent of water makes it thrive and produce twigs like a sapling. But a person dies and fades away. He breathes his last. Where is he? As water disappears from a lake and a river becomes parched and dry, so people lie down never to rise again. They will not wake up until the heavens are no more. They will not stir from their sleep. If only you would hide me in Sheol and conceal me until your anger passes. If only you would appoint a time for me and then remember me. When a person dies, will he come back to life? If so... I would wait all the days of my struggle until my relief comes. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. For then you would count my steps but would not take note of my sin. My rebellion would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. But as a mountain collapses and crumbles and a rock is dislodged from its place, as water wears away stones and torrents wash away the soil from the land, so you destroy a man's hope. You completely overpower him and he passes on. You change his appearance and send him away. If his sons receive honor, he does not know it. If they become insignificant, he is unaware of it. He only feels the pain of his own body and mourns only for himself. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, what a weighty word. We thank you for it. We thank you for all of the scriptures breathed out by your Holy Spirit, they're infallible, inspired, sufficient for us. This particular passage this morning, Lord, we pray that you would give us insight, illumination from, uh, from your spirit, that we would see the glory of your Son most of all, but that we would be pressed further into your arms. There are a, a, a wealth of, of griefs in this room, a ton of pain and suffering, of anxiety and worry. Help us to know through your servant Job and his prayer that we can cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. And it's in your son's great name that we pray these things, in the name of Jesus Christ, the name above all names, amen. Um, I don't know about you, but, but I, I hate to wait, like hate to wait. Um, and, but it's just a part of life, increasingly so. My uh, family is convinced that um, the Lord is trying to sanctify me specifically, by making me wait constantly. So I have the spiritual gift. Anyone else have the spiritual gift? I have the spiritual gift of always picking the wrong line in the grocery store. Right? Or the, the bank drive through teller. Right? It, it could be empty. It could be long. It doesn't matter. If I'm in it, it's the one that's going to take the longest. You walk into the grocery store and there you see the sign It says Express Lane, which is one of the biggest lies from the pit of hell that has ever been uh, conceived. It's never express. At least not for me. I hate to wait. You go out to eat. It's one of my favorite experiences, to go out to eat. Who doesn't like to go out to eat? I hate to wait for a table. You sit down. I hate to wait for the server to come over and take my order. I hate to wait for my food. And then when I'm done eating, I hate to wait for the check. I want to get out. I'm so quick to get there that I want to get out as quickly as possible. I hate to wait. I don't know if you are like me, but I hate to wait. But waiting is a part of life, isn't it? I once read... um, once upon a time, and I shared it with my children because I was trying to instruct them, and now it's backfired on me, which is that uh, delayed gratification, the ability to uh, uh, delay gratification is a sign of maturity. I, t- I said that to them because they hated waiting, and now they say it to me all the time. Dad, you know, wait, uh, delayed gratification is a sign of maturity. And I say, shut up, you're a child. I'm not supposed to speak to you. But they're right, they're right. They, they know that it is good for my sanctification to wait. You and I, however, depending on, you know, regardless of how you deal with the grocery store, the restaurant, the bank teller, the fast food drive through all of us have to wait for a lot more important things, though, don't we? Some of you have been waiting a long time for healing, physical, maybe even emotional healing. Some of you have been waiting a very long time for reconciliation with a loved one, for some kind of comfort, for some kind of peace. And the difference between the Christian and the one who does not know Jesus, because everybody is waiting for something, including unbelievers, they're waiting for some of these things as well. The difference between the Christian and the one who doesn't know Jesus is that Christians believe Jesus will meet all of our needs. Maybe not all of our wants, but all of our needs. So just as Christians grieve as ones with hope, we wait as ones with hope. And waiting in hope is exactly what Job is doing here. Most of you are likely familiar with the story, at least the basic outline of the story of Job. I'll just try to catch you up in a few sentences. Job is a righteous man. He loves God. He's also a wealthy man and a prosperous man. And somehow there is this arrangement, actually, the Lord permits the devil to afflict Job. And all in one day, he loses everything. He loses his children, he loses his livelihood, and he loses his health. In fact, the only thing that Job is allowed to maintain is a nagging wife. And some friends who when they first show up, when they first show up, do the exact right thing, which is they say nothing. They see that his suffering is great, and so they sit down with him, and none of them speaks a word. They just enter into the pain and the suffering with him, and in solidarity just sit there. But then they begin to open their mouths. And some of the things that they, these friends say are true enough. They, there's a mixture there. They say some things that are true, but a lot of it is just kind of good advice. And they're, and they're also feeding some bad theology to Job. And so Job is now afflicted not just by what has happened to him, but these, these uh, you know, false beliefs and false assumptions and accusations that continued to kind of bombard him. So now he's as laid low as a person could be. He's in the ash heap. He's scraping boils off of his skin with shards of pottery. And of course, of course, a righteous man in that situation would be crying out to God, help me, help me. And by the time we get to Job 14, he begins with kind of, he's in a dialogue with his friend Zophar. And Zophar has suggested that Job's troubles are because of his lack of faith. His friends are almost like little prosperity gospelists. This must be happening to you because you don't believe strong enough or you haven't lived righteously enough. But the Bible's very clear that while Job is a sinner, as all people are, he's a righteous man. This is not some kind of you know, yin and yang situation taking place here. This is not some kind of formulaic thing where he didn't believe strong enough and therefore trouble comes his way. No, he's facing the pain, the suffering, of simply being a human in a broken world. And so here is his current disposition. He begins kind of responding to Zophar, but it gets sort of um, elevated into a prayer to God. He, he ends up essentially speaking to the Lord as he's speaking to Zophar. It, it becomes almost a prayerful response. This is his current disposition. This is how he feels, verse 1. Anyone born of woman is short of days and full of trouble. What's he saying? Basically, life is short and it stinks. I mean, I guess it could be long and stink. That might be worse, right? At least it's short if it's going to be terrible. But the emphasis is simply on this. Life is terrible and then you die. That's how Job feels. Life is terrible and then you die. If you ever encounter anyone, believer, who believes that the Bible doesn't reflect the realness of life, the real stuff of life. That it's full of some you know, sentimental fairy tales or just sort of inspirational platitudes. That it doesn't actually touch on the realness, the brokenness of real life. There's lots of places you can take them to in the Scriptures because God is always honest with us and He's always truthful about the way the world works. But take them to Job. Take them to Job. In verses 5 and 6, Job has already begun further ascribing his lot to the sovereign direction of God. And in this moment, at least, he's not exactly happy about it. He's being very honest with the Lord that he's not happy with the Lord's direction in his life. Since a person's days are determined and the number of his months depends on you, and since you've set limits, he cannot pass. Look away from him and let him rest so that he can enjoy his day like a hired worker. What is he saying? Basically, lay off Lay off of me. I can't take any more. It's not enough, God, that you determine how long we're going to live. You also allow hardship to come to us. Can't you just turn your head for a moment and let us have a little bit of freedom, a little bit of peace? you ever feel like that? you ever ask God the same questions? God, I know you love me, but I, I, I'm not feeling it right now. It feels like you're out to get me. It's just one thing after another. This is where Job is. His feelings are very real. The pain is very real. And somehow he knows that although his immediate affliction is at the hands of the devil, he knows that the devil is on God's leash. As a mountain collapses, verse 18, and crumbles and a rock is dislodged from its place, as water wears away stones and torrents wash away the soil from the land, so you destroy a man's hope. You completely overpower him. He passes on. You change his appearance and you send him away. If his sons receive honor, he does not know it. They become insignificant. He's he's unaware of it. He only feels the pain of his own body and mourns only for himself. Job has been stripped down to his essence. All of his comforts are gone. All of his physical pleasures are gone. All of his material goods are gone. All of his earthly joys are gone. And what is he left with? Pain pain but also also hope i want to share with you three things about hope from this passage the first one is this hope defies what is seen hope defies what is seen This is what Job sees with his physical eyes as he looks around and just kind of contemplates the hurt, the pain, the the bent-over agony of his own body. He sees sorrow. He sees loss. He sees sickness. He sees a hurtful wife. He sees ignorant friends. And he's beginning to note the apparent futility of it all. If that's the only place his gaze is going to be, it is certainly futile. And his pain is compounded. Verse 7, there's hope for a tree... If it's cut down, at least a tree will sprout up again. Its shoots will not die. If its roots grow old in the ground and its stump starts to die in the soil, just the smell of water, the scent of water, makes it thrive and produce twigs like a sapling. But a person, feel what he's feeling here. But a person dies and fades away. They just decompose into dust, right? He breathes his last Where is he? Verse 11, as water disappears from a lake and a river becomes parched and dry, so people lie down never to rise again. Or do they? What Job is saying is this. Look, you can see the fruit of a tree. A tree can bounce back. All we see of a person, though, with our our earthly eyes, what we see with our physical eyes, is that they get older and older and more frail and more frail. And then they die and then they waste away. That's what we can see. But the Lord has asked us to walk by faith, not by sight. Remember um, after the resurrection of Jesus, when he's in that room with his closest friends, with his disciples, and Thomas has some questions. Thomas is thinking like, when a person dies, can they come back again? I mean, a tree will come back. This is kind of I'm, I'm I'm applying Job to Thomas's logic here. Thomas is thinking what the natural person is thinking in that moment. When a person dies, they don't come back. Like everybody knows that. So I'm not going to believe unless I can touch you. Can I touch your wound to make it, like is it really you? And we can assume reading between the lines that Jesus condescends in in compassion to let Thomas do that. Thomas gets a bad rap. Like, we call him Doubting Thomas. We don't call Peter Denying Peter. That's a lot worse. I mean, poor Thomas. I mean, he's he's just us. And the Lord condescends and compassion. we think, to let him touch his wounds. But remember what Jesus says to him. Do you believe because you've seen? Blessed are those who believe who have not seen. One reason God has allowed this attack on Job to take place is so that Job would learn not to trust in what he sees, but instead to snuggle up close to the Lord. In my time as a pastor, I've conducted multiple counseling sessions, more than I can count. And invariably, many of those involve deep pain, grief, suffering, hardship. The residual hurt from trauma in the past, abuse, things like that. Or just difficulties in life, sickness, a prodigal child, a prodigal spouse even sometimes. And the number one question, sometimes it's, it's phrased in different ways, but really the root question, the number one question that, that I've received, and those of you who do discipleship counseling type situations, um, you might resonate with this. The number one question that I always receive in some way, shape, or form is this. Why? Why is this happening to me? Why is God allowing this to come into my life? Why me? It's a, very, it's a very Jobian question. And I would see, is my place in, in, in my role as a pastor at that time, not to have all the answers actually. Because I don't know the mind of God. I mean, I can say generally why there's brokenness in the world, why there's suffering in the world, because man disobeyed God. And in his disobedience, he brought sin into the world. And where sin is, there is brokenness and rebellion but why you are going through this specific trouble. I, I cannot say. I, I don't know the wisdom of God. I don't know his, the ins and outs of His sovereignty. I don't know why He would choose you in this specific situation. But I will ask you this. I do know this. And so I would reply to their why question with another question, which was this. If you weren't going through this situation right now, would you be as close to God as you are? And I never, I never had anyone say yes. No one has ever said yes in response to that question. We may not understand why it's happening, but it draws us closer to the Lord, doesn't it? When you're suffering, you pray differently than when you're comfortable. When you're hurting, when you're in grief, you pray differently. This is a difficult truth to accept, but the Lord is always more interested in deepening our sense of need for Him than He is in giving us no reason to need Him at all. Maybe one of the why questions that he allows these things into our life is because he knows that these things push us further and further into him and into trusting in him. If life was comfortable, there was no pain, there was no grief, there was no suffering, you wouldn't sense your need for God as much, would you? And the Lord knows that. C.S. Lewis says pain is God's megaphone. Lewis, not unfamiliar with suffering himself. And this is where Job is everything he sees touches smells hears feels is miserable his life looks hopeless and yet and yet despite his visible tragedy he hopes in the invisible god see christians don't hope as the world hopes the way the world hopes kind of goes something like this i hope this happens or i hope that happens and what they're implying is it might not there's an uncertainty in it an an improbability in it there's potentiality in it but not Certitude. The Christian doesn't hope like that. When the world hopes, they think when a man dies, he just fades away. He breathes his last. That's it. He decomposes, becomes worm food, does nothing. That's all they can see. But the Christian's hope is not like that. It defies what we can see. And it is ripe with the promise of what cannot be seen. The world's hope is hollow. But the believer's hope is firm. Because the believer's hope is Jesus Christ. And just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's not real. Just because you don't see him now, in fact, doesn't mean you won't see him then. Hope defies what is seen. This may be all I can see with my eyes, but I know this isn't all there is. I may get old and weak and die, but that's not the end of the story. That may be what the world sees, but that's not the end. Jesus is real. He is true. He reigns. He sustains the universe by the word of His power. Hope defies what is seen. Secondly, secondly, hope calls for what is unseen. Hope calls for what is unseen. In a way, we could say that hope demands the unseen. And I don't mean that it demands things of God. That would be inappropriate. But what I mean is this. Hope is a calling for what lies beyond. Hope, in a way, demands things of us, actually, that we won't assume that what we see is all there is to the story. So Job prays, verse 13, if only you would hide me in Sheol and conceal me until your anger passes, if only you would appoint a time for me and then remember me. When a person dies, verse 14, will he come back to life? If so, I would wait all the days of my struggle until my relief comes. Job is here saying, in essence, my hope is that this will be worth it. That the deepness of the pain that I feel right now will be matched with at least as deep a joy when it's all said and done. He's not saying, oh, I hope this is worth it. He's saying, my hope is, is that I know this will be worth it. He knows that in the end, it will be worth it. So even if he can't see through the tears of his pain, he knows that he can endure to the end given what is coming. When a person dies, will he come back to life? This is the first hint at where Job's ultimate hope really is. If that's true, if a person could come back to life, I would wait all the days of my struggle until my relief comes. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25 hope that is seen is not hope. <laughs> because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. Or C.S. Lewis again puts it this way in his novel, The Great Divorce. He says, Some mortals say of temporal suffering earthly suffering no future bliss can make up for it not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory this is the way the new testament speaks of suffering that it makes us more like christ and anything that makes us more like christ has got to be worth it even if it hurts and this is what Job is doing at this very moment. His hope is demanding what is unseen. He is committing to eagerly waiting, to enduring. If that's what it takes, if that's what i got to do. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. I'm not faking it until I make it. I'm not putting a smile on a sad face. I'm owning the fact that this hurts more than anything that I've ever felt before. But if this is what i got to do to endure to the end, with your help, Lord, I'll do it. He's committing to eagerly waiting and enduring. This is what he's saying in verse 14. I believe if I could know that I'm going to come back to life, that this isn't all there is, I would endure this struggle till that day comes. If that's what it takes, Lord, I will do it. What about you? What about you? Just take a moment here to to apply what is happening. If you knew that this life is isn't all that there is how would it affect how you live today how would it affect how you go about this week if eternity was real and i'm just assuming by the very fact that you're here on a sunday morning that you believe eternity is real there's more to life than what you can see so if that's real if that's true how does it impact your day no matter what's going on in your life. Some of you have come in this morning with deep pain and grief, some that others don't even know about. You're just carrying it around invisibly in your heart. Pain from your past, trouble from your past, maybe something going ongoing in your life right now. And in the back of your head, there's this thought that sometimes pushes its way forward. I don't know if I can go on anymore. How much longer do I have to do this? What would make it worth it? What's the answer to that question for you? How would it affect your hope in the midst of suffering to know this isn't the end? If you knew that at the very last day when when the glory crashes into this broken world and you will finally be redeemed and that this glory is coming soon, Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. You will enjoy forever the paradise of fellowship with Christ. Wouldn't that affect how you see your day-to-day life? Or shouldn't it? Wouldn't the knowledge of future glorification make the painful sanctification this side more bearable somehow? Not painless, not painless, but more bearable. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the Christian's answer is meant to be yes, yes. If that's the end, I can can bear this now. This is how Paul puts it at one point. He says, I consider the sufferings of this world to be a light, momentary affliction. And you may think, well, if he could call it that, he must not have suffered very much. I invite you to read up a little bit on Paul. And everything that Paul went through. Physical ailments, scars, enduring pain and agony from being tortured, persecuted, shipwrecks, frequently hungry, assassination plots devised against him, in jail, in the darkness, losing his eyesight, we think, on his way eventually to be beheaded. I consider this suffering to be a light momentary affliction. What's he doing? I mean, is he is just blowing smoke? Is he deluded? How, how would you, why would you call everything you've been through a light momentary affliction? Well, he says... I consider it a light momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that is going to be revealed. It ain't, it ain't light and it ain't momentary. But compared compared to eternity and the glory that is coming, it's like a blip on the radar. Hope is how we believe that there's more to the story. It's how we pull out of our pain a trust that God is doing something with it. He's making us more like Christ and anything that makes us more like Christ is worth it. There's no higher goal for us than to be more like Jesus. Don't set your sights so low to have what Job had in the beginning. For some of us, that's, that's the apex. That's the goal, that we we're comfortable, we've got a happy family, and we got our health. Well, at least you have your health. All things you, you don't get to keep anyway. It all goes back in the box when it's all said and done. Don't set your sights so low. But to be like Jesus, rich or poor, healthy or sick, to be like Jesus, that's the the goal. Hope defies what is seen. Hope calls for what is unseen. Thirdly and finally, thirdly and finally, hope delivers on its promise. Hope delivers on its promise. In a way, despite all of his pain, Job knows that dying isn't the worst thing that can happen to you. That as bad as his pain is, there is a pain that is worse still. And this is something that you and I have to reckon with too. When Job looks forward to the end, this is his first hope. Verse verse, uh, uh, verse 15. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands for then you would not count my for then you would count my steps but would not take note of my sin my rebellion would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity now how is this possible that the God who sees all things, who directs all things, even according to Job's theology here, this pain and suffering coming into my life, it may be because the devil's attacking me, but I know he can't do it unless you allow him to do it. So ultimately, this is you, sovereign God, and this sovereign God is going to somehow overlook offenses, unholiness? How is that possible? There is the, the seed here, or the root here, of the good news. The good news that Jesus has gone to the cross to pay the penalty for sins. And because He pays the penalty for sins, we can be forgiven. Have our sins not taken note of. That the Lord would say about our sin, I don't don't even note that. It's not even in my records. How amazing is that? And wouldn't you rather have that, if you had your choice, I know if we had, you know, if, if all bets were off, we would have a comfortable life and our sins forgiven. But if you had the choice, comfortable life or your sins forgiven, which do you want? And Job is making that choice here. And he's basically saying, if I could know my sins would be forgiven, I, I, I could put up with the suffering, I think. I mean, if, that, if that's true, if I know my sins can be forgiven, I can deal with this. For as long as it takes, in fact. See, Job is is in a way, I mean, he's a real historical person. This really happened, but he's kind of a foreshadow also. He's a prefigure, in a way, of Jesus. Jesus, who was God incarnate, come in the flesh to suffer. And unlike Job, Jesus was sinless. But also, unlike Job, Jesus knew what he was getting himself into. There were no surprises. him he was willing to be afflicted and he goes to the cross the deepest most agonizing pain not simply the physical torture of the cross which was the most agonizing pain one could endure but also carrying the the sin of the world the wrath of god poured out on him He's bleeding before he even gets there, sweating blood as he's praying. And he does all of that. Get this. This is why I'm here. I'm glad you're here this morning because out there it's all bad news. This is the good news place, yes? I'm glad you're here because here's the good news. He did that for us. He wasn't just trying to be like a good example of sacrificial living. I mean, he is that. But he ain't just that. He took your sin to the cross. And then after the darkest day, a thrill of hope, as the Christmas song goes, the resurrection. He comes back bodily, gloriously. He answers the question, when a man dies, he fades away, is that it? Will he come back to life? Jesus says definitively, yes. Yes. And to put our faith in Him is then to cling to the One who has lashed Himself to us in the deepest, most serious, and seriously eternal love ever to be known. The Lord of the universe so unites us to Himself that His death becomes our death. That His resurrection becomes our resurrection. And no matter where we are, whether we're in, in, in health or pain, happiness or sadness, riches or poverty, certainty or confusion, we are hidden with Christ in God Himself. And so, there's a warning here. To turn your back on Him. To put your faith in only what you can see now is to decide not to see Him Later. Or at least not to see Him later in joy, but in judgment. To turn your back on Him now is to choose the death that comes after death. The wages of our sin, which is eternal death in the fires of hell. Eternal condemnation. But the one who is lashed to Jesus, come what may, Lord, wherever you take me, even as through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm with you. That person has an eternal joy to look forward to. So if you're a Christian, if you have repented of your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, the most important thing about your life is settled. Isn't that a relief? As many worries and pains and griefs, confusions, doubts, Hostilities this world throws at us—the most important thing, the thing that matters most—is already settled. Done deal. Well, that makes me happy. All right, me and you. (laughs) Me and you. Romans five five. Paul says this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us this hope will not disappoint us. Or as some other translations put it, this hope does not put us to shame. What was it that Job could look forward to? Maybe, maybe he had a hope that he would get his fortune and his health back. We know at the end of the story, he has those things restored. The Lord does restore those things to him, but he doesn't know he's going to get those things back. And in any event, he's not getting his children back the most precious thing. For all he knows, this is it. This is what life is now. The ash heap, the boils, the poverty, the pain. In his mind, this could be it for the rest of my life. This is how I'm going to feel. This is what life is always going to be. It couldn't get worse, and then it does. And it certainly can't seem to get any better. And all along, we never see Job say, I hope I get my stuff back. No, where is his hope? If you have a printed Bible open or you have... Uh, your phone or iPad perhaps, scroll over or turn over to Job chapter 19. Just five chapters after this one. Job 19, and look at verses 25-27. to Here is where his hope is in the midst of this. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end He will stand on the dust. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My my eyes will look at him and not as a stranger. Oh, my heart longs within me. This is Job's hope. First, that the Lord would not take note of his sin. And then, because of that, that the Lord would deliver on the promise of hope. Lord, I don't know what You're doing and I don't know the ins and outs of Your providentially orchestrating the smoking crater that is my life right now. (laughs) But I do know this. When it's all said and done, I'm going to look you in the face. And I'm going to see in your eyes, and I will understand. Finally, you'll see me, and I will see you, and all will be well. What is he hoping for? The future glorification that is promised to all believers. That is what will make suffering worth it. Knowing that those whom God justifies, he will glorify. You're going to receive a resurrection body. When a man dies, can he come back to life? Yes. If you are in Christ, the resurrection into eternal life. We rehearsed this a little bit over the conference time, but those of you who were here, we'll just rehearse it again. Those of you who are fresh, let's enjoy it together. You're going to have a body like Christ's body. His is the first fruits of ours, the New Testament tells us. Do you remember what that resurrection body could do? It's real, it could be touched. It looked like him, but it didn't look like him. He could eat breakfast, praise God. Breakfast in heaven, what is that going to be like? What were the hash browns, the fried eggs, my Grammy's fried eggs? In heaven, taste? he could eat breakfast, and he could walk through walls. I want to eat breakfast while I'm walking through a wall, just to <laughs> put it together. He's gonna give you a new body. As you get older you appreciate this more. (laughs) As you're younger, you're like, hey, nothing wrong with this one. Just wait. It's coming for you and it's coming quickly. (laughs) You're gonna get a new body. To enjoy the Lord face to face. Lord, earth. There's the new heavens and new earth crash into this one. First Peter 1 Peter three Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of His great mercy He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now turn back to Job 13 one chapter before our focus passage. Job 13 and we're going to see what Job is making of all of this. Given all of this hope what does he do? Chapter 13 verse 15 Even if He kills me, I will hope in Him. Or in older translations, Yo, they He slay me, yet will I have faith in Him. I don't know where you are this morning, emotionally, spiritually, physically. Maybe you're desperate right now for a message of hope. It took you all the faith you had just to get in the door this morning maybe. The Lord knows that. The Lord sees that. Remember, you don't get to the resurrection except through the cross. The cross must come first. And as far as the Lord's timing is concerned, it, it does very much seem like the cliche is not a cliche. It is always darkest before the dawn. So what are we to do? Maybe you feel like you're in a very dark place right now. What do you do? Know that whatever you're going through, If you belong to the Lord, it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Your tears will turn to joy. Your ashes will turn to beauty. All of the pain, all of the agony translated into perfect, painless happiness with him. The most important part of heaven. The reason heaven exists. To magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can endure with hope. If you're a believer, I know you can because you have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And because Christ has come to be born, to live, to die, and to rise again. And he is here in spirit now. And he will come again. Doesn't this make it all worth it? It does. I'll answer the question for you. It does. It makes it it worth it. Hope defies what is seen. Hope calls for what is unseen. And hope will deliver on what is promised. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I ask on behalf of these precious souls here, this beautiful church, that you would press further into our hearts the glory of your Son, Christ Jesus, that we would be more in awe of him. Help us to love each other well, all because we know that is a great testimony to the good news. Help us to be good news people. I pray that you would comfort this church in her afflictions, that you would give great wisdom to this church, as she pursues more knowledge of your word. I pray you would give a great witness to this church as she pursues to make your name great in this town and beyond to the furthest reaches of the earth. None of this can be done apart from your spirit, so we ask for that gift more and more. We thank you for that gift. And we pray all these things in the name, the holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me send you out with this benediction. It comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. Go in peace, thank you.